this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is one of the most prolific and recognized character actors of the last six decades. You know him from dozens of TV appearances, including Bewitch, That Girl, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Yacht Couple, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bob Newhart Show, Saturday Night Live, My Name is Earl, Arrested Development, and Scrubs, to just name a few. In his 50-plus years in show business, he shared the stage and screen with Jack Benny, Phil Silvers, Lucille Ball, Danny Kaye, Lee J. Cobb, Steve Allen, Lana Turner, Doris Day, Sid Caesar, Gene Kelly, and Tunga the Chip. (laughs) And let's see, did we leave anything out? Only his turn as Alan A. Dale in Mel Brooks' cult series, When Things Were Rotten. His unforgettable portrayal of the nefarious Siegfried on the iconic spy comedy Get Smart. And his nine memorable seasons as the lady-killing Dr. Adam Bricker on the wildly popular series The Love Boat. Please welcome to the show a versatile actor who's played everything from a Puerto Rican dentist to a German submarine captain. One of our favorite performers, the pride of Erasmus High, Bernie Capel. Gilbert, could you save a little of that for my memorial? (laughs) (laughs) I'd appreciate that. Welcome, Bernie. Holy moly! That's that was just what a that, that was. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm awed. I'm awed. Just the, you left out some of the uh, tennis things I've done. <laughs> you want to tell us about it? Oh yes, back in the seventies, uh, eighties, and nineties, the beginning of the nineties, uh, the big companies had some excess money uh, that's dried up since then, and they they sent people on television out all over the world for pro-celeb tennis tournaments, and it was just lovely. Well, back in 1991, my partner at Stanford University in Northern California was Billie Jean King. Wow. Now, there's a stadium named after her in New York for the U.S. Open. She, she surprised me. Every time we won a point, and I was so intimidated, I said, my God, this is Billie Jean King. I better... I better do my best tennis. Every time we won a point, she came over to me and gave me a tremendous, delicious kiss on the lips. That was <laughs> not, that was not amusing. That was just very, very sensual. And I, I, I enjoyed that. She, my, she, my, she's an iconic woman. She's, she's campaigned for years for uh, uh, the same money for women. Oh, oh, equal pay, yeah. And she got that stadium in New York. Yeah. And oddly enough, she keeps the same last name as the husband she uh, divorced. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, You may find that that amusing. She gave you a kiss every time uh, after a game? Every time we won a point. Every time we won a point. 
Now, when I played with um, uh, some other people, um, Bruce Jenner, he never gave me a kiss. <laughs> You're a pretty serious tennis player, Bernie. Uh, yes, I am. Yeah. Yes, I am. I, I, I got into it kind of late, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, you mentioned James Franciscus a little bit earlier. Yeah, James we did Franciscus. before we turned the mics on. Yeah, he, he got me into uh, celeb tennis. A wonderful man, a wonderful man. He had a great voice. He had talent. He had all the things that you would require as a leading man actor. Unfortunately, his wife left him, and it knocked him off his equilibrium. And um, he went bye-bye. Too bad. He had a, yeah, he had a short career, but he was terrific. He was wonderful and a, and a great, uh, a great uh, athlete as, as well and a great friend. He was the best man at my first wedding. Uh, my sec- I'm sorry, my second wedding. And this was James Franciscus. James Franciscus, yes. Yeah, I remember he used to be on TV a lot. Yeah, oh, yeah. Longstreet. Yeah, he was, he was yeah, a blind, blind cop. De- yeah, blind detective. Oh, he's in a lot of great stuff. He, he, was, he was in movies. He did something opposite... Uh, uh, Opposite Paul Newman. He was a wonderful, Oh, yeah, wonderful and he's actor. in uh, Planet of the Apes. Yes, yeah. yes, with, with Charlton Heston. Yes. And I wonder, was he also in the Lee J. Cobb uh, Death of a Salesman? No. No? Bernie no, was in I, one version of that. You were? I Yes, I was. Uh, you know, I, people think of me, if they think of me at all, as a comedic, comedic actor with all the, all the things I've done, but... This was a this was the CBS special 1966 with Lee J Cobb, Mildred Dunnick of the original cast, and uh, George Siegel and uh, Jimmy Ferentino. Oh, uh, that as, was the one. As, as as the boys, and I played the boss's son who realizes that Lee J Cobb, Willie Loman, is no longer competent to represent the company, and I have to let him go. I have to, and so I, I let him go. But when he said, you can't fire me, he had such power as an actor, I felt that my body would be damaged just standing next to him. Wow. People have the same feeling about you, Gilly. <laughs> they do. <laughs> uh, when I no. was in Funky Monkey, they said that about me. I know. Funky and, and Monkey. That, that was <laughs> that scene, that famous scene where he goes... Promises were made across this desk. Yes, yes. He was, at one, at one point, of course, the, Mildred Dunnick and Lee J. Comber in the original cast uh, back in, in the 40s. And uh, they had a wonderful relationship. But it, uh, and he would like to do little digs. He said to her during rehearsal, we rehearsed it uh, here in, in L.A. She said to him, Mildred Dunnick said to Lee J. Cobb, Lee, why is it that whenever I rehearse and go through my lines and I get to where I like it, why is it that my my acting comes out exactly the same? And when you approach your role, it's always full of nuance and differences. Why, why is that, Lee? And he said, because you're a lousy actress, Millie. <laughs> no, they they loved each other, and he just had that. He even said to me one time, he said, are you uh, acquainted with the, the sea? 
I said, why do you ask? He said, but I noticed you were fishing for your lines. Oh, I like <laughs> that. Not hilarious, but, you know, passable. And, and so you say when you were working with Lee J. Cobb, you got chills. I got chills. I got chills and spilkes. <laughs> <laughs> working with Lee J. Cobb. He was such a powerful actor. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't know, you know, like Mel Brooks would say, he didn't know from a checkbook. He bet too much. And when he was hospitalized at the end, Frank Sinatra, one of my great heroes, paid his hospital bills. Oh, they were in that. Oh, what was that movie they were in together? Uh, come come blow your horn. Maybe, or, I, think, I think it may be. Yeah. He, Lee J. Cobb played Frank's father. Yes, yes. He was just a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. So Frank Sinatra paid Lee J. Cobb's hospital yeah, bills. Yeah. Frank That's Sinatra, interesting. I'm so pleased. When I worked with Frank Sinatra, I was so pleased and grateful that he liked me. Uh, and to quote Don Rickles, uh, talking to uh, Mr. Sinatra, the, the, the chairman of the board, he said, um, Frank, you, you're looking a little down. Hit somebody. You'll feel better. <laughs> When did you work with with uh, with Frank? Well, back back in '85, I fronted the Desert Princess. You know, having having to do with Princess and the and the Love Boat, mm-hmm. uh, and I fronted this hotel, the, the Desert Princess. And Barbara Sinatra called me, and, and she she said, "Bernie, we'd like to do a telethon uh, benefiting the abused children of the Coachella Valley, and we'd like to use your hotel, like my hotel. It was not my hotel." And uh, Frank will be there, and Sammy will be there, and Bob Hope will be there. And uh, this was almost too much for me. I said, oh, boy. And she said, will you, will you co-emcee it? I said, I, w- I would be delighted. So just a week before that, uh, we were having one of these pro-celeb uh, events, t- tennis events, and uh, we always had a gala on Saturday night. So somebody said, you know, I think Sinatra's going to be there. I think Sinatra's going to be there. I think he's going to come and check it out. So I said, oh, my goodness. I, I, I hope I can say something that, that pleases him because you've got to please this guy. So I remembered something that, um, that, that a television commentator had said. Why is Frank Sinatra always in the company of kings and princes and popes and heads of state? Because even those people need someone to look up to. <laughs> wow! Now, your laughs are f- your laughs are fine, but they're a little delayed. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the connection, Bernie. Now, I I also want to ask you because just recently, well, obviously, you were on Get Smart, and you played the evil uh, chaos agent Siegfried, and so just recently, Dick Gaudier who played Jaime the Robot, passed away. What do you yeah. remember about Dick Gaudier? Dick Gaudier, number one, was a very handsome guy. And he he played Birdie on, on Broadway. Oh, Conrad Birdie. Yeah, he was the original. Yeah, he was the original. And I was under the impression that they passed him by in the, in the film. That wasn't the case. Dick had this thing, God love him, of... Uh, Whatever, when, whenever they made him a, an offer, he said, they're insulting me. He could have he done the movie. They came to him with some kind of an offer. I don't know what it was, but he said, they're, they're insulting me. And then w- when we did Get Smart Again, 
They made him an offer, and he said, no, they're insulting me. I said, Dick, this is an opportunity to, to work. It's always fun to work. It's more fun to work than not to work. You know, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be with us. You'll be with me. We can have some laughs. He said, no, I, I will not work for that money. So I finally persuaded him, and afterwards he said, you know, I'm so glad I did that. We had fun. It was great. He had some kind of a fixation where he should have been offered more money. Interesting. where that came from. What about when, when did you guys first meet? Did you meet on Get Smart? Did you have history before that? Well, yeah, well, he, he did, uh, yeah, we, we met on Get Smart, but he also did a, a number of love boats, a very handsome guy. Oh, yeah. With, with, he had something I resented also, a full head of hair. Annoyed, <laughs> just annoyed me, no end. And, and he was terrific at playing deadpan, like when he was Jaime the Robot. You take one shot of Novocaine in your, in your cheek, and that does it. <laughs> That's the secret. <laughs> yeah. And you guys also did When Things Were Rotten together. We had, I was telling you before yes. we turned the mics on, we, yes. had, we had Norman Steinberg here a couple of months ago. We had, I mean, When Things Were Rotten, I had assumed, because Mel Brooks had said to me after Get Smart, you made a lot of money for me, kid, talking to me. I, I said, gee whiz, I made a lot of money for Mel Brooks. Gee, that's so great. So I assumed, erroneously, when, uh, when Things Were Rotten came up, that he would just come to me for one of the, one of the roles, one of Robin Hood's men. Not, not, it did not happen. <laughs> they cast Charlie Callis in the role of um, Alan Dale. Then Charlie Callis... Found, Charlie Callis was doing Vegas for 16000 bucks uh, a week. Big, big money, big, fat money. And when he found out that he would be getting, I think, 2225 for uh, when things were rotten, he said, unprintably, that. <laughs> and, uh, he, he, and so he, he fell out, and Mel pulled me in. And that's how I got that. But it was great fun. And we had four standing sets at Paramount. Four sets. We had, we had the Bonanza set, an indoor, an indoor stream, an indoor forest. And we, we had another set that was the interior of the, of the palace. We had another set that was the, an exterior of the palace. We had four standing sets at Paramount. Said, so Dickie Van Patten, when we started out at number one, Number one, and that was number two, and I kept getting lower and lower. And so Dick Van Patten says to me, he says, Bernie, they can't take this off. This is Mel Brooks for free on television. They can't take it off. We got four standing sets. It's, it's great. This will, will go on for me. I said, well, the numbers are decreasing. It's, it's not looking that good. He said, oh, come on. He said, I'll make you a bet. Dick Van Patten bet on everything. I bet on nothing. <laughs> Because uh, I, I, I didn't start out in, in, a, in a very high way. I came out and I, I, I drove a taxi. I tried to sell Kirby vacuum cleaners. Um, I, I was a blue chip uh, stock boy. It was a while before, before I got going. So Dick says, okay, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I'll do. He was always very excited about betting. He said, if they take it off, I will give you $3,000. But if they keep it on, all you'll have to give me is $1,000. They took it off. (laughs) I could have been a rich man today. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to the show. Now, Bernie, we yes. have a surprise. Back when, back when you were the evil German officer Siegfried, if you remember, there was a beautiful, sexy lady spy named Agent Ninety Nine. <laughs> I love and, your setup. <laughs> and and we have the still beautiful and still sexy. Miss Barbara Felden on the phone. <laughs> Barbara, can you hear me? This, hi. Barbara Felden yes. is is the most independent, intelligent actress, human being I have ever met in my life. I adore her. I have adored her for 47 years now. I love you, Barbara. It is mutual, as you know, and as I've often said. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> You having a good time chatting about the old days? I'm having I'm having a wonderful time, and and Gilbert is being very I don't know how to how to put it. He sort of lays he lays out the lines, uh, in 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 a very I, I wouldn't say a ponderous way, but in, in, a, in a in a very definitive definitive way, like you're not going to miss a syllable. Bar- Barbara I, had I, to be the nicest guest. Bar- Barbara, it's Frank. How are you? Hi Frank, how are you doing? We're great. You ha- we you were b- by far the nicest guest we've had oh, out of 150. Out question. Barbara invited us up to her house. <laughs> she put up with us. And and she made lemonade. She had like oh, she cookies, homemade cookies, cookies, everything. I misunderstood. I, I thought that I thought that Dara said that uh, she brought lemonade and cookies to the studio. I guess not. In her house, she she received us in her home. This is this is how brilliant and and uh, and independent uh, uh, Barbara is. I called her. We, we talk all the time. So I, I I called her one day. She said, "Bernie, I have to call you back." Why, why, why is that? Because I have a string quartet playing in my <laughs> living room. <laughs> how many people? How many people do that? Barbara <laughs> Feldon does it. Now I've talked to Barbara about you and you about Barbara, and and I mean the two of you seem to be in love with each other. I well, am Bernie, in love. Bernie, first of all, Bernie was like there. There are favorites that you have on a show on any show, and Bernie he was not only my favorite, but he was everybody's favorite. He and Buck Henry, I think, were the most. The most warmly adored people on the show. I mean, other people were very nice, but they were like very uh, occupied, preoccupied. But um, Bernie, I remember clearly standing on the set while we're waiting endlessly for the lighting to happen, and uh, him teaching me how to jump rope. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. It was a beginning. That was the beginning, jumping rope. Yes. Yes. Why did I? Why did I have to share that with Buck Henry? I thought I would be uh, all by myself with all that praise. Well, you. Well, yeah. Well, no, Buck's. You've got to admit, 
huggable, right? He was brilliant. Not everybody knows this. You know, people talk about, oh, Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks was more interested in film at that time, the silent movie. So he was there just peripherally every once in a while. And But Buck Henry really took over the, the, the head writing in the first two years. And he was absolutely brilliant. And then, and then he sort of graduated with uh, The Graduate. Yeah. Yeah, he went on to really... Well, I get, you know, I, I was going to say he went on to bigger things, but I think that uh, I spoke to him recently, and um, I said I had just been to an autograph show, and somebody had come up to me and had talked about what the show meant when they were going through this terrible crisis in their lives. And I, and I told Buck that he, he did things that were like more prestigious in terms of how they think of things in Hollywood, like movies as opposed to TV. And I said, but there is nothing you should be more proud of than the contribution that you made to people's lives, what it meant to them and how it help them through crises and so forth. But of course, when you're making something, you don't have any idea of that because the audience is, you know, out of, out of sight and you don't know, you know, uh, where they're watching you or who they are or anything. Sure. It's just lovely, lovely to hear that. Well, obviously, that's why we do this podcast. We feel that way about both of you guys as well. Well, that's, that's, that's very kind. I, I got to th- throw this in. Uh, just about a month ago, I did Hawaii Five-O in Hawaii. Uh, I played a concentration camp survivor, which is very unusual for me because people think of me as a comedic actor. Now, this was certainly not funny. Uh, it, it was a very, very heavy emotional piece uh, about my time in Auschwitz with my brother and my sister. And one night, just just to just to tell you what what this was. Uh, the the uh, Unterschaufuhrer in charge of our barracks dragged us out of the barracks. He held a gun to my head and he made me to choose which one of them, my brother or my sister, would live. If I didn't choose, all three of us would be shot. So I chose, and the the guy the guy eventually escaped. Uh, when the when the Russians came and he lived the rest of his life in Hawaii, and that set up the that set up the the story. So anyway, Chai McBride, you know who he is, black actor, brilliant, very very big guy, marvelous marvelous uh, actor. My sh- my my shooting was the first of the day. He didn't come in. He was not called in until much later in the day. Anyway, when I came in at 7.15, he walked in. He said, Mr. Coppell, I have never done this before, but I'm doing it now. He said, my family and I couldn't wait until you played Siegfried on Get Smart. <laughs> we, sat around, we sat around the TV and laughed our faces off, and he gave me a big hug and uh, that that kind of thing makes you feel so good the respect of of a contemporary well not quite he's much younger than i am then again so is methuselah <laughs> but uh, that's okay 
uh, it was so sweet. Um, when Bernie would do Siegfried, it, it would just everybody it would just stop what they were doing to watch because it was such a transformation. He was the energy was so brilliant, the concept of it, the slyness of it, the the twinkle in Siegfried's eye. It was just a marvelous character, and it's and I, and I think that I mean, of all characters on Get Smart, aside from the three principles, Siegfried uh, is the most beloved and the most remembered. And and Leonard Stern, uh, Bernie, just saw you in something, and just out of the blue, offered you the part. Ask you if you could do a German accent. I was doing um, I was doing a play in a little. A little teeny theater, 158-seat theater, a theater in the round, uh, playing a Russian immigrant uh, selling a fruit fluter, a, a misnamed kitchen utensil, uh, door-to-door in the freezing Buffalo uh, winters. And um, it just clicked with people. So many people who, who came to see it were uh, sons or daughters of immigrants, and they came back again and again and again because... I guess I, I, I had a resonance with, uh, with, with immigrants. And Leonard Stern came to see it. He was certainly overdressed for the occasion. <laughs> it was like a little, a little dumpy theater. And he came backstage, very tall man, and his head was almost scraping the ceiling. And he said, Bernie Coppell, we're going to work together. And within three years, he created the Siegfried character for me. And we were... Great, great friends. He was my mentor, my dear friend for 47 years. So that, that began the whole thing. Can we hear some of Siegfried? Don't be ridiculous. Why would I do such a thing? <laughs> what, is, don't, what is with you? Oof. Do you? Okay, I'll do it. Go ahead. I did it. Oh, you did uh, it yeah. already. <laughs> I thought you were going to do the submarine scene. Oh, oh, the submarine scene. Oh, golly. The, the, we, we were chasing the, uh, the six fleets, um, and uh, we, we were trying to get them in range to, to shoot a, a torpedo at them, and they were dropping depth bombs very close to us, and they, they, they dropped one that is very, very close. Boom, boom. And the guys begin to panic, and I say to them, you will not panic until I give the order to panic. <laughs> and then another huge depth bomb came, and I said, prepare to panic. <laughs> Bar- Barbara, we know you got to run, and you're, you're, you're on a tight schedule. Before you, you leave us, did you, uh, do you have a, a memory, a specific memory of, of working with Bernie? One moment? I know it's tough, and it's a long time ago. Aside, you mean actually in the script, 99? Yeah. Anything come to mind? Or off camera? Well, just that it was so hard for us to keep a straight face when when we were doing scenes with him. Because it was like some act of nature that was happening in front of us in terms of acting. And the thing, the, the only regret I have about Bernie's career... Uh, is that he didn't get he, uh, he that was a chance to show the extraordinary imagination he could bring to a character and um, and or maybe I've just missed those performances but <laughs> I mean he he's a marvelous actor and in everything he's done 
but the the, the audacity, uh, his capacity for that audacity, uh, it was just dazzling, and uh, he's brilliant. I mean, he's just an absolutely brilliant actor. And, you know, you touched uh, Bernie here because while you were talking, he was mouthing the word wow. He was quelling, I believe is the yeah. word. Yes. <laughs> I don't I don't quell that often, but uh, Barbara just makes me quell. Uh, even, though, even though sometimes I get spilkus, uh, she makes me, me quell. Just, just, just the, the everything about Barbara, her independence, her great, huge intelligence, and she wrote a book. She is so different from most actresses. And I, I've, I've asked her, I said, Barbara, um, would you like to have another series? She said, no, um, no. I said, well, you, they pay. She says, yeah, you sit around so long. I said, they pay, <laughs> they're paying you while you're sitting around. I said, she said, no. I love it here in New York. I read my poetry at the Y, and um, I live I live the life that I love. And she wrote a book, Living Alone and Loving It. So that is just, actresses I know would kill for another series, even, even for, a, for a guest shot on a series, even to pass by a studio. Yeah, I heard with Barbara, they offered her like a small scene in in the current like Get Smart movie that came out like oh the Corel yeah. yes yeah and and they said you know we'll pay you this much money you know you're there for like an hour or so she didn't want to do it and then they I, I, then they called I, her back and said look you don't even have to act come by say hello to the cat <laughs> and she still didn't want to do it I asked Barbara about about that I said w- wouldn't. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be fun for you? She said, why would I do that? <laughs> and that, that stopped me cold. And I, said, I knew why I did it, because with my background, with it, cab driving and, and all of that stuff, uh, I could use the... They paid me very nicely. And uh, it was fun to meet the director, um, uh, Pete Siegel, and, and to spend some time with, with Steve Carell. And, uh, and it got my insurance going for another, another year. So I like that. I have two, two little kids to send th- uh, through school. Uh, but Barbara's just so amazingly independent. She knows what pleases her. And I, I would say a lot of human beings don't know what pleases them, what makes them happy, what they love to do, what they love not to do. This is one, this is one of the reasons I adore this brilliant, brilliant woman. Bernie, this is your interview. This is supposed to be focused well, on you. It was, it was till you got on. <laughs> Barbara, this is a thrill for Gilbert uh, and me. We're sitting here talking to Agent Ninety Nine and Siegfried, and we're pinching ourselves. And and also, I like. To hear the two of you talk, like the two of us can just go home and let you <laughs> That's do it. the rest of the That's show. That's it. But Bar- Barbara's, Barbara's got to go. But Barbara, before you do, do you, you, you have to wish Gilbert a happy birthday. Oh, my gosh. It's your birthday. Yes. Happy birthday to you. Happy you birthday to oh, you. Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought he'd like that. Happy birthday, dear Gilly. Happy birthday to you and many more. Oh, yes. Siegfried and Agent 99 singing me happy birthday. Now, Barbara, before I let you go, 
you have to say one thing to me as my gift. Uh, just give me an old Max. Oh, Max. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara, you're the greatest. Uh, Thanks for taking the time for this. She turned me on when I was a little kid, and she turns me on to this day with... <laughs> you too? Big hugs to all of you, and uh, and happy birthday to you, Gilly. That's, that's so sweet. This, this is your birthday. What a present. Yeah. Oh, well, you mean me? I'm... <laughs> the whole experience. Barbara, thanks for chiming in. Oh, thank you, thank so, you much, so much, Barbara. Thank you so much for, for being a part of this. I truly, truly appreciate it, Barbara. We all love you here. And and me, you, all of you. Okay. Yeah, but me more than anybody else here. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't listen to those schmendricks. <laughs> How about okay. that? Bye-bye, Barbara. Okay, bye. We love you. Bye, Barbara. Thank you. What a kick, huh? Oh, that was lovely. Just lovely. To to just have a little get-together like that from Get Smart is just wonderful. Truly, truly. Uh, I'm a little bit sad that, uh, or very sad, that Don Adams uh, is not alive anymore. You know, he was a Marine yeah, sure. Don Adams was a Marine, and the bullets didn't kill him, but the Fakakta cigarettes did. Wow. He smoked. Yeah. Because everybody smoked in those days. Yeah. In, in the, some of the beginning uh, segments, he's smoking a cigarette. And um, that's a, a diabolical thing. It'll, it kills people. So many people of that era were dying of cancer. And it was like, especially show business, everybody smoked. Remember Arthur Godfrey? Sure, we talk about him a lot on this show. Arthur Godfrey was busy with Lipton tea and Chesterfield cigarettes. Chesterfield cigarettes. And he pushed him, buy him by the carton, buy him by the carton. And he probably caused more people to have health issues uh, than anybody else in the world. Okay, so uh, coming to Love Boat, Arthur Godfrey, with one lung remaining, uh, played a part uh, on, on Love Boat. And there was some kind of a mix-up. He had to walk up the stairs and walk down the stairs. Now, that's very difficult to do when you only have one functioning lung. And I thought, well, the, I guess he's being paid back for persuading uh, people to smoke cigarettes. Oh, he's and an anti-Semite anyway. Yeah. Well, he, he, Arthur Godfrey. He, uh, uh, yeah, he hated the Jews, Arthur Godfrey. I love Jews so much, I had them for parents. <laughs> Bernie, since you bring up Don Adams, let, let's talk a little bit about him. And, and you said he was very welcoming to you. Yes. Not all stars of comedy shows were welcoming. I don't want to mention any names, Danny Kaye. <laughs> but uh, I got a big laugh I, because I, my first five years was nothing but a Latino. So I was playing a Latino and I got a big laugh. And, you know, some I don't want to upset your listeners, but instead of appreciating the fact, like, like uh, Jack Benny, uh, Jack Benny played, played the straight man to everybody else, uh, 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 
Dennis Day, uh, uh, Rochester, or Mel, Don, Mel Don Wilson, Don Wilson, Mel, Mel Blanks, and Don, Jack Benny was such a, a prince of a man, and he understood that whoever gets the laugh on the Jack Benny show makes the Jack Benny show better. He understood that. It was not the same way with a certain uh, aforementioned uh, young man. So eventually, um, I think uh, he, he didn't like me uh, getting laughs, and eventually I was dumped. Danny Kay, you mean? Danny, yeah, Danny yeah. Kay. Now, conversely, uh, Steve Allen, you know, I, I, I did 30 shows with Steve back in 64. Uh, he was, Steve would laugh in the middle of, of one of his own sketches. So at one point I said, I said, Steve, after it was over, I said, Steve, that, that was not that particularly funny. What, what was, what were you laughing about? He said, you should hear the show going on in my head. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And he was a delicious human being. And so when I got to Don, I said, oh boy, you know, if God is good, uh, I'll be welcomed here because it was not always the case. He welcomed me. Uh, he was responsive to my to my work, and I was so grateful that the guy. You know, see, when you're the head of a show, you are concerned with will they will they watch the show? Will how are my numbers be? Uh, will will I be picked up for next year? How are the ratings? How are the ratings? Do they like me? And and all of these issues. Uh, I remember working with with uh, Telly Savalas, who turned out late. Telly Savalas did a Love Boat later on, but w- when I did his show Kojak, um, I said, "Okay, we have this scene sitting at a table. Uh, he's he's talking to me. I'm talking to him." I said, "The guy never he never looked at me." I said, "What the heck? This is not very gracious." I looked behind me, and there were two guys with cue cards. Oh. You know, is it is it acting or is it getting into the can? And the similar thing happened with uh, with Raymond Burr. I did his show, and, and I said, he's in a wheelchair. Ironside, he's in a wheelchair. What, what is that? So he was sort of very casual while they're setting up, and he said, he said, I told, I told the network, I said, I'll do it, but I will not stand up and walk around anymore because... Uh, I don't want to. I, I, it just bothers my back, and I, I like to sit. So they said they didn't know what to do. So they said, okay, we'll have it in the script that you were shot in the back, and you're, you're semi-paralyzed, and you have to be in a wheelchair. She said, that's great. You're that kidding. is great. <laughs> you're you're so, kidding. That's where, that's where Ironside came from? Why would I kid you after so all we've meant to each other? Come on. He just, he just didn't want to walk around. Hilarious. He wanted to sit. So it's through he the wanted show. to sit. He sat in the wheelchair. Not only that, but I was saying to myself, he should be sort of going over the scene with, <laughs> with, with me while I was I had the scene. So I'm hearing kink, 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 kink. They wheel in a teleprompter. <laughs> so for the whole for the whole scene, he's sitting in the wheelchair and he's reading his part. <laughs> I said, but, but, and then afterwards he said, you know, this, you know, I sort of, um, I really stuck my foot in it. I said, well, why, why is that? How did you stick your foot in it? He says, well, I demanded to be seated and not, not having to learn the lines, but I have to look up whenever I talk to an actor or an actress 
and it's damaging my eyes because I had to look up. I said, I'm so sorry that you have this problem, that you caused yourself. But, uh, but later on, when he did A Love Boat, he was giddy. He was fun. Oh, I remember that episode. Because he didn't have the, the, the issue of the pressure of all the stuff that when you're, when you're the lead in a show, he didn't have the pressure. I remember when Raymond Burr popped up on a Jack Benny show as Perry Mason, and he was hysterical on that. Oh, he had a great sense of humor. Once he didn't have to worry about all these things that I, I previously mentioned. No, he was a delightful guy. And and he had, I, I just can't get over it. He he want, he was ready to do the show, but he didn't want to walk or move around or learn his lines. So some, I, I always said to him, some acting. Wow, this is really something. Well, he did a lot of standing on Perry Mason. Yes. <laughs> you know, got to stand at the. So so Bernie, the I guess the point you're making about about Don is that it was his show and and he he didn't uh, he didn't have to be so accommodating to you and so and so generous to you, but he was. He was loving. Don Adams was loving and sweet. And, and I, I even said to him one time, I said, "Is this is anything I'm doing bothering you?" He said, "No, you set me up." He said, "You set me up," and I came in one day without the makeup, just to see what was happening. And he looked at me, gave me a very odd look, and he said, a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> huh? is, this, is this on? Very funny, man. He said, yeah, that's, that's what he said. It's, it's like a, a lot of stars. Yes. A lot of stars are very insecure. So if they hear someone else get a laugh or they feel like someone's look or it's better looking, they start to panic. I never had that problem, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I was never I was never better looking than anybody. Uh, I, matter of fact, Jim Drury, the guy who played the Virginian. Oh yeah, yeah. your your old friend. Okay, we were old friends. We were we were classmates at NYU. We were going to be great Shakespearean actors. As soon as he went to Hollywood, of course, all the girls at NYU said Hollywood, Hollywood, because they looked at him, perfect profile, a nice deep uh, bass baritone voice. He went to Hollywood and zap, as soon as he went out there, he started working with Elvis Presley, uh, a Ride the High Country with Marriott Hartley. So Jim is, now I just get out of the Navy and uh, I talk to Jim all the time. He talked to me. He's, one day he said, he said, Bernie, I got an agent for you. And I said, this is magic words, magic words. Got an agent for you, someone who's going to push for me. I go out there, go out to Hollywood, and I'm very nervous, and I have my 8 by 10 and my little very skimpy resume, and I, and I show it to, to, um, to his, his agent, and the agent looks at it in a very, very um, judgmental way, looks at my picture, looks at me, and he said, did Jim tell you I'd be your agent? How could I be your agent? I, I, he said, you're not handsome enough to be a leading man. You're not ugly enough to be a heavy what can I do with it? He, he said, I'm, he said, sorry. I, yeah. And I was dismissed. <laughs> but one day, I was at the rain check. The rain check was an actor's hangout. And Bobby Morris, who was a, 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 a commercial casting director, she comes to me and she said, Bernie, have you ever thought about doing commercials? I said, no, Bobby, I, no, I never have. 
She said, well, you look like anybody. And right away, this opened up a whole new world for me because looking like anybody gives you more opportunities Interesting. than if you just look like a leading man or a heavy. This is how moronically I thought in those days. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing commercials, going out uh, to get commercials, and right away I started clicking. My first one was a Ford commercial. Um, and then I did, I did it for all the beers, all, this, all the... Uh, even cigarettes. I'm so sorry, and God forgive me for, for doing cigarettes. But, but I made up for the cigarette thing because in the 80s, I had a campaign on television for a product called Sig Arrest, which was an anti-smoking thing. So maybe I persuaded some people not to smoke with cigarettes. Let's hope so. Yeah. Early, your, your early career is particularly interesting, Bernie. You're a, you're a Jewish kid from Ocean Parkway here in Brooklyn. And you yeah, went, and you yeah, went up getting cast yeah. as Latinos. How did that happen? Almost exclusively. <laughs> how did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It was a very peculiar situation. It, okay, so I had this agent. I had this agent who was very slow. He was so slow, <laughs> he would send me up for parts that had already been cast. That's how slow <laughs> this guy was. So one day, and as I parked my, my taxi in the, in the parking lot of um, CBS uh, Television City on Fairfax, and I go in to see Marilyn Budge, and this was a career-changing thing for me. And I come there, and she looks at me, and she makes a sad face, and she said, I'm so sorry, Mr. Coppell, but the part that you're up for has already been cast. And I said, okay, that's fine, and I'm about to leave. For some reason, I have no idea why she said this. There were five guys coming in who could have been Juan or Jesus or Chico or Pablo. She said, while you're here, would you like to read for Pablo? And I, was, I got so pissed. I just was beside myself with frustration and anger. And I said, okay, okay, I will read for Pablo. I had no idea how to do it. I said, okay, uh, uh, Jack Parr has this uh, piano player called Jose Melis, and, and uh, Bill Dana has this character called... Um, um, oh, Jimenez, uh, Jose, Jose Jimenez. Jose, Jose, you say Jimenez, Jimenez, I say Jimenez. Yeah, my name Jose Jimenez. Very good, very nasal, but very nice. It was very good. <laughs> so I am saying, how do I do it? How do I do it? And I'm trying to remember these guys. Uh, how, do they, how do they do that? I walk in, I will take up the precious time of this producer, Buzz Blair, I'll never forget his name, and I nail it. I got the part. So for three months of my life, I'm playing Pablo, threatening blind ladies and being mean. <laughs> and so the, the, the director, Herb Kenworth, very flamboyant guy, and uh, I, I put, in, in the middle of the night, I put together this, this little routine I said, okay, I will have the personality, a combined personality of Pablo and Herb Kenworth. And I made up this little routine, and that got me going. That just got me going as someone who did a Latino accent clearly, because they pay writers a lot of money. I did it clearly, understandably, and I, and I got the laughs on all these shows. Favorite Martian, Flying Nun. Oh, yeah, yeah, you were the Puerto Rican dentist. 
That's right, a Puerto Rican dentist. <laughs> uh, and I was opposite, opposite Alejandro Ray. That's right. And my, my mother, my Brooklyn mother said, Bernard, Bernard, well, I, it's nice that you've got a job, but you're talking funny. Why are you, you're to, I said, Mom, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. They're sending me checks, and the checks are clearing. She said, oh, this is great. Can, can you do one of those Latino characters for us, Bernie? What I did on the Jack Benny's, I'll just give you a piece oh, of Oh, I remember this. the Benny bit. I'm the least important part of this act. My brother is the fastest human being in the world. I'm going to shoot at him. And he, with his amazing agility and grace, will dodge the bullet. Of course... <laughs> And then my, my brother comes out, and he has a ballet costume with a cape, and he's standing in front of a, a cutout of a human form. And I said, may I have a drum roll, please? And I shoot at him, and he goes through this amazing jerky movement, and he dodges the bullet. And Jack sticks his finger in the hole that the bullet made, that, you know, was made by a prop man. He's pulling a little thing out. And uh, Jack says into the camera, amazing. And I say, okay, now I'm going to shoot two bullets into my brother, and here will again dodge all of the bullets. Bang, 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 bang. That was only two. You remember? <laughs> I'm sorry, that was too many. So he gets out of the way again, and Jack puts his finger into the two holes, and he said, Incredible. And, so, and they said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to empty my six guns in the direction of my brother, and he will again dodge all of the bullets. And bang, 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 bang. He does this insane movements. And he stands there at attention for a moment, and then he falls down dead. And Jack walks up to the body, supposedly. And he had this sense of timing like nobody in the world had. Looks over the body, and then he looks into the camera, and he says, well, I guess they just weren't ready for the big time. <laughs> and he was such a prince. He was such a prince. He said, when we were rehearsing, he said, how come you know your line so well, you son of a bitch? <laughs> I said, because, Mr. Benny, I, I just, I, I couldn't dream of, of messing up working with you. And he did a gesture like, like this. He said, oh, come on. Like, please, you know, I, I, I don't deserve that kind of praise. I have not heard one bad thing about Jack Benny. No. And you never will. You never will, Gilly, because he was just that confident in his ability, he surrounded himself with funny people and funny, hilarious writers. And he was, he carried it off like to the manner born. And his name was actually Benny Kubelski from Waukegan, Illinois. Oh, sure. His parents brought him up to be a, a concert violinist. He was not that good, but he used the violin uh, comedically. I think we've interviewed cl close to 25 or 30 people on this show who've worked with Benny and nothing but praise. Well, he deserved Universal that and, praise. and more. He deserved it more. Also, getting back to Don Adams for a second, 
from what I heard, it looked like Don Adams' like midlife crisis hit him really bad. You know, he oh, started really? well, ha- having an affair and all that stuff. Well, let me put it this way. Don had a very short attention span with wives. Um, he sort of bounced around uh, with, with the ladies. And, and Dorothy, one of my favorite of his wives, stuck by him as he was sort of uh, sniffing around as, as, as a bee would sniff around um, the ladies. I don't know if I, if I put that in a, in, a, in a nice way. But he was, um, he, he married a number of times and he had a number of, of kids. But he said to me when I had my first kid, my little Adam, I brought him on the, so we were doing a commercial for an insurance company or something. I brought, I brought my little, he was about 18 months old. Now he's uh, six foot two and he's going to UC Santa Barbara. And Don said, looking at the baby, he said, enjoy him now because when he gets to be a teenager, he'll turn on you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Adam never turned on me. I got another one and another 14 year old. And he's uh, insane about baseball. He's a very good little little jock, little Joshua. I just you had know, one so, one last question about your your uh, your your skill at playing Latinos. Did, did do I have this right that Harvey Corman thought you were so good at it that Harvey Corman thought you were Mexican? Harvey Corman, Harvey Corman played a detective on the Brighter Day, which was the soap, right. Where you were Pablo. Uh, that, 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 where I was Pablo. All right. By the way, you're not allowed to do that anymore unless, you're, unless you are an actual uh, Mexican or Puerto Rican or Cuban. And I salute that. I applaud it that people took a very firm stand about that. Harvey Corman, this is before the marvelous things happened to Harvey. Everything was caca with, with him. He was trying to sell... <laughs> he was trying to sell um, Encyclopedia Britannica's out of his trunk. He had this beat-up old <laughs> oh Chevy. God. No. Uh, so when he comes on the show, he's, he's an ill-fitting hat. He had a frayed collar. And I felt bad for the guy. Not only, not only that, but he has this, he has this part. He's, he's a detective, and he has, to, he has to ask everybody all these questions. So we do the first one. We do the first 15-minute segment, and then the, uh, Herb Kenworth said... Okay, let's do the second one. Harvey Corman said, the second? What, what second? He only thought there was one. Everything was stopped, and Corman is, was feeling, you know, he had that, that cotton mouse thing. He felt so bad. He had to learn the lines quickly. I felt bad for the guy. So I took him across the street after it was over, and um, he told me this sad story. He said, I was cast in Menasha Skolnick's play Menasha Skolnick was was one of the uh, one of the comedians in the in the Yiddish art theater and uh, after the first rehearsal I was fired I said why why were you fired you you seem like a, a competent actor he said Menasha Skolnick's guard dog wife was watching the the rehearsal and she said after the first rehearsal she said Bernasha, if this common stays in the play, nobody's going to see your face. They said, why is that? Because you're very short, and he's very tall, and you've been looking up the whole time. 
they'll see maybe a piece of your chin or maybe your neck. <laughs> they wouldn't see your face. Harvey was let go, and they brought in Norman Fell, who was shorter than Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's what happened. So uh, Carmen was... Um, Carmen was was great. We we would we would spend uh, so much time together at his, at his place, pl- playing ferocious ping pong, drinking vodka, and listening to Mel Brooks and and um, and uh, oh, Carl Reiner and Carl Reiner's yeah. two thousand year old man. Which today, this is you know sixty years later, and I'm still laughing. We just had Carl on the show. Oh, he's he's he was amazing. The gem. Um, so. Har- Harvey, was he a happy guy off camera? I hear mixed things. I spoke at Harvey's memorial. He was a very conflicted man because we have this very strange something in the uh, in in our in our tribe, and that is if something good happens, and I think this happened in the in the shtetls, in the in the little little Jewish communities, if something good happens. You mustn't um, accentuate it. You you mustn't uh, you mustn't verbalize it, because if you do, God will get upset and come and and hurt you. This is a very insane concept. So Harvey was was conflicted that way because he got the Danny Kay show, he got the Burnett show, and he fought it. He fought he fought that success. So uh, I think eventually, I, hopefully, he straightened it all out. But um, this is this is something that 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 stays with with some some people, and they just can't they can't get over it. Because I remember Dick Van Dyke in an interview said he had to. Oh, he was hired by the Carabinetto, Dick Van Dyke. But he said, but then I had to follow Harvey Corman, who was the greatest second banana in the world. Yes, Harvey was brilliant. And at, at, at Harvey's memorial, I said, at the end of my little talk, I said, um, you know, this, this uh, conversation rages on and on. Who is the best second banana in the world? Is it Carl or is it, or is it Harvey? And then I said, we'll never get a straight answer out of this, but Harvey had better legs. <laughs> <laughs> I, Which was I, you true. know, you, you want to see a, a, a great comic performance. I mean, his performance in Blazing Saddles, as as good as everybody else in that movie is, he sec he second to no one. Yeah, well, Mel said Mel said it was hard it was hard to keep a straight face uh, with 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 Harvey. Okay, so I got to tell you one more thing about about Harvey. Year after year, I would send Harvey or send Harvey a case of vodka because, as I said, we, we played ping pong. We listened to 2,000-year-old man, and we drank vodka. So at one point, Harvey said, he said, Bernie, he said, I really I appreciate the, the, the case of vodka. That's very nice. But how about something warm and personal? I really would prefer something, something like that. So I thought and I thought, and I see something in the paper, American bidet. I said, hmm, <laughs> that seems to be warm and personal, so I'll send him, I'll send him one of that, you know, squirting in, into your, into your uh, place. <laughs> so I bought one, and I sent it to his home, and I was expecting a huge laugh, and oh, thank you, that's marvelous. Nothing. Nothing happened. 
So I called the company. I said, hello, American Bidet. I sent, uh, I sent uh, Harvey Corman. A, a, he said, oh, yeah, and that was very upsetting. <laughs> Our man delivered it, and Harvey asked him, what is, what is this about, this big package? And he told Harvey what it was about, and Harvey threw him out because he was uh, very attached to his rituals. <laughs> <laughs> His toy, toy, his toy, toy rituals. So we went back to the vodka, okay? So he had a certain way to have his bowel movements, and he wouldn't change them. Yes, it was not. It was, this is sort of an after, an after movement. And I remember, I remember, I remember. Bill Maher was was talking. This was a couple of weeks ago. Bill Maher says, "Why do they emboss toilet paper? I mean, after all." Look what you do with it. Exactly. What's the difference if, if it's embossed or not? Let's ask you about another funny person, uh, Dick Sean. Dick Sean. Okay, Dick Sean does a love boat, and he's he's hanging he's hanging out behind the camera, and he's watching me, and I'm doing this kissing scene with this lovely, beautiful lady, Rebecca Holden, kissing, more kissing, more kissing, a talking, a little bit of talking, more kissing, more kissing, <laughs> a little less talking, more kissing. <laughs> And so I come off, and Dick Sean says, now I know what Love Boat is. I said, what is that? It's a porno flick done by Disney. (laughs) (laughs) That is perfect. It only went so far, okay? What what was he like, Dick Sean? If you've seen the second greatest uh, entertainer in the whole wide world, he moved in a balletic way, but in a, in a masculine, balletic way. And he had a delivery that was so unique. Uh, and he did this thing with a banana, but you know how he died? He died after act one. He lied down uh, 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 surrounded by a whole bunch of newspapers because it has something to do with newspapers. And he didn't go away for the, for the uh, intermission. He stayed there, and uh, so you expected him to get up. He did this um, uh, performance in, uh, in near near San Diego. He didn't get up. He died on stage, and some people would think that it would be a wonderful thing. Not me. I don't want to die on stage. I don't want to die any place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope I'm not dying right now. No, no. Every, every once in a while, you schmendrics wow. are laughing. And now you, you also work with Sid Caesar. Uh, yeah, yes. Sid was Sid was brilliant, but uh, yeah, I remember uh, Larry Gelbart said he can't ad lib uh, a hello. He was he could do anything with any accent, with the French, Italian, Japanese, this and that. But when it came to Sid doing something as himself, he apparently was incapable of, of doing that. And um, that's how he was. But he was a genius given a character with an accent. Yeah, I, I heard from a few people, they said he, he didn't exist in real life if he mm-hmm. wasn't a character. It's true. That's true. It's very, very peculiar, but... He was surrounded by the most incredibly, incredible geniuses in our business. Neil Simon, Danny Simon, uh, 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 
Well, Gelbard himself. Gelbard. Yeah, Mel, Gelbard. Tol- Mel Tolkien. Gelbard, Mel Tolkien. Um, Larry Gelbard's father was a barber. Sure. And he was, he's a barber, and, and Larry said about, it, about his home, he said this was a, a, a literature-free home we lived in. There were no books. His father just thought, he, you know, the, his, his father was a guy who did haircuts for uh, Kirk Douglas, for Burt Lancaster. And he would let you, you'd come into the barbershop and you'd sit there and he said, let me tell you the latest joke I heard. And he would tell you a joke. But there were no books in the house. And how, how did Larry become such a literate, ingenious man to write all these brilliant plays and, and to, to have created um, M.A.S.H.? It just came to him. He said, I think I'd like to read some books. Oh, he was and selling he jokes as a 15-year-old. That's right. Yeah. He and, and, uh, and um, Woody Allen. Yeah. Very, but, uh, you know, you never know where, how, where people are going to end up. And you worked with Phil Silvers. I worked with Phil Silvers. And I guess at one point I wasn't talking loud enough or fast enough. <laughs> and he said, don't, he said, don't give me any of this Secret Service acting. I said, okay, okay, I'll talk louder and I'll talk faster. But he was a brilliant man. And he did, he did the, the, the show that finally got Love Boat on. He played an old guy. And he had recently had a, a minor stroke. And I thought this, why are they doing a, a story like this? He had a love affair with Audra Lindley. And she, wa- she would have liked some kind of a commitment from him. And he wouldn't give her one because he felt it would be unfair because he knew he was dying to get a commitment, to give a commitment, to get a commitment. So um, uh, one, one of the actresses, uh, Pat Harrington was, was a little upset because his wife was spending a lot of time with me. And it turned out that I, I found out that she was pregnant. They'd been looking to be pregnant for a long time. And at the same time, I came on and I, and I said that the Phil Silvers character had passed away. Now, I wondered, why did they do this in a show that's supposed to be light and comedic? It worked perfectly because you had a, a connection with this very sweet older man who dies, and at the same time he dies, the lady gets pregnant, and it's, it's sort of a, spir- a spiritual thing if I can be serious for a minute. And some people say, oh, yeah, well, he died and his soul went into the, into the baby. If you laughed at that, I will smack the hell out of both of you. <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm going to look that one up. I don't remember that episode. That sounds that was a, great. That was, a, that was a third pilot that got us uh, on the air because we, we did the first pilot. Uh, and we always we, there was always a problem with not, not having uh, the, the proper lady cruise director and the, the lady captain. The first cruise director, her main claim to fame was she could do bird calls. <laughs> so she, she, she would greet people and say, 
Hello, welcome aboard. Okay, that's not so funny. But maybe maybe the next thing that comes out of me will be. So we had the the next one in the in the uh, in this in this second pilot. We had this very lovely girl who had beautiful extremities, and she did foot inserts and she did hand inserts in commercials, and she was really not interested in in being uh, Julie McCoy. So it was a great thing in the third pilot. How many pilots do you think people are allowed to do? But, but because of Aaron Spelling's juice, they allowed him to do three pilots, and we finally got uh, Lauren Tweez, who was a perfect uh, cruise director. I would ask you who your favorite all-time love boat uh, guest star was, but I think I know. I think it was Juliet Prowse. Oh, my God, Juliet <laughs> Prowse. Oh, 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 oh. I did a little was, homework, Bernie. Yes, well, congratulations. Uh, it's about time. <laughs> he listens to the show. <laughs> so, anyway, anyway, okay, Juliet Prowse, I get this great script. Uh, it's, the, the script is, um, uh, okay, so uh, uh, this wife of mine, I also had a very short attention span with wives, uh, we were divorced because we were very hot together, but we had annoying habits that that prevented us from being really, really comfortable. <sighs> anyway, Juliet Proud. So I gave her five hundred bucks. I said, "Yeah, you take care of it." She gives. She gave it to a, a butcher's um, a cousin, and he went away with the money. And we were still married. I said, "Oh, come on." So she comes on a brilliant. Brilliant uh, segment, Julia Prowse. I'd had a crush on her for forever. You know, she'd gone with Sinatra, my great hero, Sinatra. Yeah, and we had scenes. We had scenes in bed, and just before, just before the, we did this scene. We had a scene in bed with Juliet Prowse. I was so intimidated, and <laughs> at the same time turned on, but intimidated. And I said, oh, my God, I hope my hairpiece doesn't fall off for this, and I hope I'm, I'm okay. I'll remember what I'm supposed to say. She starts telling me a, an anecdote about Charles Boyer. I said, why is she telling me a story now? I'm trying to remember what I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing. She said, you know, Charles Boyer had uh, a scene with a very beautiful lady, and they said to her, you know, sweetheart, now there's 50 people around, the, the sound department, the camera department. <laughs> He said, um, "This we have a very uh, beautiful uh, love scene together, and possibly, if perchance I get during this scene aroused, forgive me, please. If, on the other hand, I don't get aroused, forgive me, please." <laughs> but she had—I mean, oh Jesus! My she was my so favorite beautiful. thing about Juliet Prowse is she could honestly uh, introduce herself as an African-American. Oh, she grew up in South Africa. I think she was born in India. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah but I think she was raised in South Africa. I'll double check. Oh, and there's oh. someone else on the love boat who I'm sharing a birthday with today. Uh, Gavin McLeod. Happy birthday, Gavin no McLeod. No kidding. I love that. Gavin, Gavin we we were the old, the old. Uh, the, I can't say it on on this, but they they had the young and the old, 
I met Gavin on McHale's Navy. I was playing a, a major who was a very, very by-the-numbers kind of a guy. And Gavin had just done this uh, film with Cary Grant. I can't think of the name of it right now. So getting on McHale's Navy, he thought this, this would be a great opportunity. It wasn't. And he was very upset. Gavin had this weight problem. He's, he gained and lost the same 50 pounds again and again and again. He said, you know what they do to me, Bernie? He said, we connected on McHale's name. He said, you know, you know what they're doing to me? It's so humiliating. They put me in a place on the, on the universal back lot to block the black tower because of my girth. And they, I didn't give me anything to say. And they just placed them there so people wouldn't see the black tower. He was so depressed. I felt so bad for him. And then he got the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then in the third pilot, he got to be Captain Steubing. So the both of us were, are, I mean, just uh, veteran, veteran actors. So we get into makeup at 7.15 in the morning, have, having a free cup of coffee. And Gavin would look at me, I'd look at him, and I'd say, we got a job! <laughs> we, got a, we got a job! And we were so thrilled with, with that. And it stayed that way. I, I, my attitude is gratitude. I always felt that way, even getting my first, my first check in, in the biz, because going through the, the taxi driving and the, uh, the Kirby vacuum cleaner stuff and the, and, and, uh, and the blue chip stamp stuff, yeah, people don't know this about you, that you drove a cab, that Satchmo was one of your passengers. I and- never knew where I was. I never knew where I was. <laughs> I, had, I had this trick. I'd say, I said, excuse me, what's your favorite route to get to the destination? And invariably, people would say, oh, yeah, you go this and you go that and you go that. So anyway, I picked up um, Satchmo, Louis Armstrong at the Knickerbocker Hotel. And uh, he's sitting in the back with his manager, and uh, I heard the word malice. Mal- he had just done a tour of the South, and he was so negatively impressed with all the malice against black people that was going on there. And I, when, when he got to his destination, I said, what a privilege and a, and a delight to have you in my taxi. And he gave me a 15-cent tip. Now... That may seem odd to you, but the older that people were, the worse tippers they were. Because <laughs> money was worth more in those days. Interesting. Well, it's probably fascinating from your reaction. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I want to get back to the love boat for a second. Did, did oh, you, yeah. you get a lot of love letters from women and, and, and if I may say, also uh, naughty photos sometimes? Is that true? I, I, look, Frank, I cannot discuss this in, in, a, in a public forum. Because, I see. Uh, I'm, I'm happily married now, and uh, my wife is very strong, and uh, I value my life, and pretty soon I'll be allowed to get off the couch, so I don't want to mess that up. I, I don't know. Bernie, you've done so much stuff, and there's there, I've got almost twenty cards here, and we could keep going. But tell us, tell us what you remember about making the loved one. The loved one, 
with an all-star cast, Jonathan Winters and Rod Steiger. and uh, Jonathan Winters played two parts in that, and he was using a lot of energy. Oh, yes. So we had, we had a, a girl by the name of Anjanette Comer who was, who was uh, on, on the show. She was a little too self-assertive to please everybody. So, you know, you always have your own chair with your name on it. And she had her own chair, and she, was, she had her feet up on Jonathan Witter's <laughs> chair. And he came by, he's just done an exhausting scene, and he said, Anjanette, uh, please get your, your feet off, off my chair. And she didn't move. I said, Anjanette, please get your feet off my chair. And again, she didn't get her feet off the chair. And he said, I cannot say the dirty word here. He said, you see these hands? They're very small, but they're very strong. You get your feet off that chair, or I will rip your... And she finally got her feet off the chair. Can I say what she said? Go ahead. Did he say, I'm going to rip your tits off? Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) Now, listen, Frank, I was not annoyed that you got a bigger laugh than me with that. I just want to tell you. It's still your laugh. And I remember, I I just have to say, and I noticed this, you popped up in um, The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. That was like a Disney kids film. Yes. Yeah, that uh, was kids series. That, that was the only time my kids said, Daddy's on television. <laughs> <laughs> but what struck me about it was you were playing an old man in a home and you had to put on a character as an old man. You had to do an old man voice because you don't come across as old. That really impressed me. I'm so pleased that that impressed you, uh, Jilly. <laughs> it, you know, it's not easy to impress you, but uh, maybe I overdid the old man thing uh, too much. But but I I enjoyed it. But, I but enjoy it, I I uh, my you know like I say my attitude is gratitude. One of the things that impressed me gigantically was my father was not easy with me. I say this very diplomatically. He was very, very rough. And he, through his actions and his words, he gave me the impression that I could never make a living. Except if maybe somebody, he could bribe somebody and make them pretend that they gave me some money just by, by way of a bribe. So when I got this part in the, of the 49th Cousin at the Players' Ring Theater, very tiny, tiny theater, I would get these checks. The first time I made, I made uh, any kind of money uh, because I had just joined equity, um, I would get these checks. I cleared $33.35 a week. And this to me was so heavenly because it went against this impression that I had from my father that I could never make a living. And the 33 was this is perforated, and, and I could feel the, the made little bumps on the checks. And uh, I said, oh, boy, I'm making a living. I'm making a living. So, so much of, of, my, of my money went to pay for tickets for uh, casting people, for, for producers, for, for directors. 
and I hadn't, I had hardly anything left. So I had these very, um, very scary uh, uh, conversations with my friends. I said, I think I, I got to ask for a raise. I got to ask for something more. So I said, will, will they fire me? I don't know what, what I said. So I finally got up enough courage to do it. I said, can I, do you suppose I could get a $10 raise? And I got it. I could have asked for more, but I, I got that $10 raise. But it was so, it meant so much to me going against my father's concepts of, of me being of no value. So I discovered I was worthy. Uh, and that, that, that was a very great ego, ego building thing in my, in my uh, young life being in my mid-20s. Did he, did he get to, may I ask, did your dad get to, to, to stick around to see any of your success? Only with the Jack Benny show, when he, my father had a brain tumor that eventually killed him. And he was just so against me having a career because he, he was determined that I could never make a living uh, in anything but the jewelry business that I detested because it was, it was predicated on deceit, deceit in every possible way. So, but when I did the Jack Benny show in 72... I had an 8x10 picture of Jack Benny and myself. And Jack was looking at me, and I was being very self-assertive. And so at this part of his life, he'd already had one brain operation. And he held up the picture of Jack Benny and myself. And he couldn't speak clearly at the time. And he said, My son, my son. So he saw just that little piece of success, but he never lived to see my larger success, and he never saw... He had, he had something, sometimes he, he was just in wonder of a tomato. He opened up a tomato and there were the seeds. He says, isn't that amazing? Look, seeds that planted in the ground will make new tomatoes and new seeds. It's a, it's a lingering sadness that my father never got to see the seed of his seed, my son's. Well, you accomplished a lot. It's a great body of work, Bernie, and a lot to be proud of. Well, I'm glad I got a chance to, uh, to express some of this, and you guys were very good at uh, pulling it out of me, e- even you, Gilly. <laughs> we we barely scratched the surface if i can get back to what i was saying before yeah and it was the zach and cody episode and what impressed me so much was the fact that you had to pretend you are an old man because you don't come across. Oh, he's very energetic. Yeah, you have loads of energy and you look young. And and the idea that you had to put on a performance to be an older guy. That's acting, kid. Yeah. That's acting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm just well, so, so thrilled with, with uh, how my life is, has worked out and continues to be working out. I have a beautiful wife, very powerful, very strong. I don't want to, I don't want to cross her <laughs> in any way. And two amazing kids. How old are your kids now? 
Uh, Adam is 19. He's at UC Santa Barbara. And Joshi is 14. Uh, just a, a heck of a, of a baseball player. And, That's great. Um, and I was 64 when, when I had my first kid. Of course, Katrina may have had something to do with that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm just lucky. And my attitude is gratitude. I never stop thinking that way. You think back when you, when you think, oh, geez, look at me. I've worked with Sinatra and I've worked with, with Lee J. Cobb and, 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 and Rod Steiger and all of these people. Do you think back to the, to the hard scrabble days of driving that cab and thinking it was never going to happen? Frank, I am lucky enough to have a balance. I never thought of any other way when I am so lucky that I'm being, I'm, I'm being given an opportunity to make a living in doing what I love to do. I love to do this, and it always makes me happy and uh, pays a few bills as well. Well, you've made a lot of other people happy, so... Thank you, Bernie. And, and it's it's like uh, Frank was saying. I mean, we we could talk to you so much longer before we get to all the stuff you've done. I just want to throw in one small performance that's terrific, and it's not a big part. It's it's an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show with, oh, you, with oh, you playing oh. Mary's boyfriend, Tony Kramer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> going going back to the Dick Van Dyke Show, the first time I. Um, First time I got to see Mary Tyler Moore in person. Before that, she, there was a show called Richard Diamond. Oh, sure. All you saw of her were her legs. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember that, but a pair of legs that God made of just perfection, gorgeous. And you saw these legs, and she's the secretary. So on the Dick Van Dyke show, I did that, uh, and I was a Mexican divorce lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, it's how logical that is, that is. So Carl gives her a little bit of choreography, and she gets to do a little figure eight around, and she's wearing shorts. Gracias a Dios. And so it's, he gives her sort of a figure eight to do around this little table, and she does it with dancer's perfection. And Carl is looking at her, and he says... Mary, do it again. He said, Carl, I did, I did it exactly as you asked me. He said, do it again just for me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so she did it again. I mean, just stunning, stunning. Uh, I'm coming back to Dick Van Dyke. So I, I worked with Dick three times. So the last time, uh, when was this? The early 70s. Uh, CBS says to Dick, he was always perceived as being television gold. So um, CBS comes to him and said, Dick, we'd like you to do this show. He said, guys, thank you very much. But <clears throat> he says, I'm, I'm in Carefree, Arizona, and um, I'm relaxing here. I don't, I don't want to come back to Hollywood. They offer him more money. He says, guys, I appreciate it, and, and I'm, I certainly feel uh, flattered, but... I'm staying in Carefree. So they put their heads together and they, and they come back to him. They said, Dick, what if we build you a studio in Carefree? Okay. They built him a studio yeah. in Carefree, Arizona. So I get to play an Arizona highway patrol, and he's, he's supposed to be the host of a, of a television show. And 
he, he wants to illustrate that if you drink and drive, it diminishes your capacity. So I'm very, very straight <clears throat> in this, and I'm in my highway patrol uniform, and I'm illustrating the damage that drinking and driving can do. And this gives him an opportunity to do his brilliant drunk routine. So we do the show, and the audience is plotting. They're just falling down because he is so brilliant, physical comedian, verbal comedian. The guy can do anything. So this is the third time I'm working with him, and he says, he says, okay, Bernie, you want a drink? I said, with you? Absolutely, and I'm visualizing going to some exclusive spot in Carefree. Maybe there's only <laughs> one there. This is going to be so great. So... Um, we stop at the prop room, and I, and I figure, well, okay, so he's going to pick up something, and he's, then we're going to go on to this lovely, exclusive place. The prop room was his destination. His destination. It's, it, you know, there's bare, bare beams in there, and he goes into the fridge, and he gets out a bottle of uh, Jim Beam or whatever it was. We sit, and we got schnockered in the prop room. <laughs> so Harvey Corman, about two months later, calls me and he said, I just directed the Dick Van Dyke show. You'll never guess what happened. I said, I know what happened. You got schnockered in the prop room. I said, how did you know? I said, because the same thing happened with me. There is so much, so, Bernie, so much you've done. We didn't get to talk about uh, Lancelot Link and uh, Night Gallery and a million other things, but we'll have you back. I'd be very happy to come back. There's the so much we didn't so get. We didn't here. get to love American style, and we didn't get to oh. a lot of stuff. But this is 60 year career here. Yeah, you guys were wonderful. Even even you, uh, Gilly. <laughs> <laughs> it's your yeah. birthday, so he's cutting you some slack. <laughs> no, Frank was was magnificent, and you were <laughs> barely acceptable. <laughs> but... Oh, Bernie. <laughs> Oh. So, this, uh, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast and with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And first of all, happy birthday, uh, Gavin McLeod. Yes. Uh, thanks. Happy birthday, Gilbert Gottfried. Yes. And thank you to the lovely Barbara Felden, Agent 99, for calling in. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Bernie Capel. Happy birthday, you silly guy. Oh, thank you, Bernie. Bernie, this was a great, a great treat for us. Thank you so much. Frank, thank you, Frank. My thank pleasure. You. smile on a friendly shore